Isaiah chapter 54, and let us continue our series of studies in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 54, and this morning I'd like to do the whole chapter, so let's stand together and hear the word of God. Sing, O barren, you who have not borne. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations, and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that we would believe your word today. Please, Holy Spirit, be with us. Open our hearts, our minds to these words. Bring a revival here. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This is the text for the most powerful sermon preached in the last 300 years. Some of you may know this was preached by William Carey, the great missionary to India. It stirred up England and the West to missionary service. The sermon was given 230 years ago. On this text, Isaiah 54, on May 30th, it's called the Deathless Sermon. It is the sermon that never died. That's why it's called the Deathless Sermon. You can check it out on Wikipedia if you want. There actually is very little in terms of the notes that were taken, largely because the audience was unimpressed. William Carey's audience were largely pastors, most of which were anemic, had no real interest in the kingdom of God and the extension of his church to the mission field. There was, however, one or two in the audience that did take a few notes, and that's how we get the outline for the sermon, which was what? Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That was the sermon. And it was a sermon that changed the entire world. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. This morning, I want to review a little bit of the impact of that one sermon preached so many years ago. But uh, brothers and sisters, we're reading the prophetic language, the prophetic book of Isaiah, and I encourage you, I exhort you all to get into the spirit of the prophet. Remember, this is prophecy. This is prophetic language. Prophets are exceedingly negative and exceedingly positive. And we encourage you this morning to be exceedingly negative and exceedingly positive. Why? Because God is exceedingly negative 
and exceedingly positive. God is both. He is passionate. He uses intense language. He presses it on us that we would ourselves expect, receive it and, and, and experience it and, and understand it and live it out and, and, and emote it ourselves in the very same way in which it is expressed to us in God's Word. Sin and its consequences are very negative. And anybody who wants to heal wounds too lightly and carve happy faces on wounds and encourage everybody to think of those themselves as gay or whatever it is are, are not reflecting the, the truth of God's word concerning reality. And, and they're, they're not being nice. They're not being authentic. They're not being truthful. They're not being right and good and kind and thoughtful when they do not express the, the negativity of, of sin. So sin, sin is a negative thing, very, very negative. And we walk out of here on a Sunday morning and say, sin is very bad, but God's grace is very good. That's an every Sunday experience for us, isn't it? Well, let's get right to the message this morning, Isaiah 54, sing, O barren, you who live, you who have not born, that is, have not born children, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. This is speaking to Israel, the direct directive is, is sent towards Israel, and Israel is in exile. The northern tribes sent into exile, soon the southern tribes as well. But Israel is experiencing a spiritual barrenness. Israel is now reduced to a small remnant. Israel is no longer in the presence of God. Remember, Jerusalem is the place in which God appears and comes to live with and to be with his people. So the only hope and opportunity for man's relationship with God has been ruined. So it's a very low time in the history of redemption. There has been an estrangement with God. And so this is a very low time for the people of God. This passage is sometimes taken as to apply to the individual, but it doesn't apply to the individual. It applies to Israel, the you intended by this message is directed towards Israel, not towards the individual. It is directed towards the church, the corporate body of the church. And so we begin with this barren woman, this woman who is desolate. And so I think we understand something of the desolation, the spiritual barrenness that was experienced by Israel, for we have experienced it ourselves as well. What a contrast between the green fields of revival, which you read about in the 1550s, the 1740s, and 1840s Scotland, and the dry fields today. I read the biographies of the great men who lived in the 1700s and 1800s through these great revivals in Scotland and elsewhere, and I'm amazed that pastors like William Burns, Richard Mather, John G. Payton's father, they would have five, six, seven, eight sons, four to five to six of them became pastors and missionaries, and it went on for generations. Godly senators, godly inventors came out of these periods, but now we live in a very low time, a time of spiritual desolation. America is in a spiritual desolation at this point. Recently I had a conversation with several elders from another reformed denomination. They were lamenting over the spiritual dearth. The 30 to 40 year internal fights have gone on endlessly, crippling the ministry of the reformed denominations. And of course, the apostasy of the youth, the worldliness in the church, the internal fightings within the church has been horrible for the Reformed denominations in America. Just face the facts. What we have seen in our own denomination has been a spiritual dearth. It would be good if we could at least see this, that we have experienced spiritual desolation. We live in a spiritual desert. Colorado itself is a spiritual desert. During the great revivals of the 1700s and 1830s, 1840s in Scotland, 
four or five thousand would show up for street preaching to hear William Burns or George Whitfield preaching. You don't get that today. As you preach the serious message of the gospel, you get a smirk. You don't get people taking it seriously, falling on their faces, crying out. Sometimes the cries would go out into the fields, as George Whitfield put it, long into the night, into two, three o'clock in the mornings. He said he could hear people crying for God's mercies in these great revivals in Scotland in the, eight, in the 1740s. But this sort of thing doesn't happen in Colorado. Instead, we have spiritual anemia, spiritual death, spiritual disinterest in the Word of God. As we preach the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the mercy of God, quenching the fires of hell for us at the cross, we get a smirk. They blow it off. They don't receive it with, with a, a joy, with a, with a trembling, with a, a reverential fear and rejoicing before Almighty God. That is not the response in America today to the gospel message. We are in a spiritual dearth in this country. God help us. There are seldom jubilee trumpets blowing for Israel. No shouts of victory. No rejoicing in the salvation of God. The love of God. The love of His church. The love for His word. The love for His worship is so cold. This is the testimony we receive. Not just from pastors in our denomination. But from pastors all over. From all the other denominations. The evangelical denominations. And hardly anybody does family worship anymore. Family worship is one of the most significant significations that the Holy Spirit has come, that the hearts of the fathers have turned to the children and children to the fathers, such there's so much passion for God and for His Word that it just overflows in twice-a-day worship. Any opportunity a father has, he's not running to the videos. He's not running to the films, to the movie theater. He's not, he's not opening up YouTube. He, he's, he's bringing the Word of God to his children because he's on fire for God. He loves God, but we are in a spiritual dearth. We're in a spiritual desert. Do you understand? We live in a spiritual desert today. Hardly anybody sings the songs of Zion every day in the homes in Elbert County, Colorado. Maybe 30, 40 households. That's it. You don't hear about spiritual worship and and spiritual singing going on in the homes around this county these days. Hardly any real conversions are going on in our churches. Real spiritual revival, holiness, transformation of life. We're just not seeing it. Let me just be honest with you, flat out. We're not seeing it very much. We live in a time of spiritual dearth. God help us. But the very worst thing is when nobody really cares. The very worst thing is when nobody's really praying for it. No no amens to a cry for revival. There's no sense of a a need for revival because those who are dead don't see a need to live. No real passion for for God to bring a spiritual reviving to our churches in the present day. It's the anorexic church starving itself to death. A long, torturous process, just horrible to watch for those who have some life in them to watch it. This was Israel in 700 B.C. Now in exile, it looked like the end, the end of the church on earth. Not the only time this has happened in history. But then God gives a promise. Now God turns to those with the faith to read, to to hear, to believe, and He gives a promise to us. And children, this is the beautiful thing. The church is barren. The church is sad. But God gives a promise to His church. God speaks the promise. Now this promise, I believe, is not just to Israel. Some people take Old Testament just to Israel, but no, no. The prophecies are to us and to our children. These prophecies are for us to read and to say amen to. Promise to anybody who's been discouraged. Those who live in a spiritual desert. If you have ears to hear the promise and faith to believe God, what would happen if we would read this this morning and believe it? I believe that's a simple answer to to where we are today. If, If we would hear this message, if we'd embrace this promise and believe it's not just for Israel 700 years ago, but it's for us today. I believe you'd be encouraged. I believe we'd see revival. It's for us to believe it, to believe the words that God has given to us as he gave it to Israel so many years ago. 
So the promise more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. The married woman is the kingdom of David. The kingdom under the, da- the king, uh, kingship of David. The desolate woman is the exiled people of God. What does this mean? It means there will be more spiritual fruit out of this desolate church exiled in 700 B.C. than what they saw under King David. They remembered back at something of a kingdom impetus that was given during the reign of David or a period of about 40 years. It was about the best time that Israel experienced in all of the Old Testament period. And that was considered the married woman. But now we have the desolate woman, the exiled people of God. And now the promise is there will be more spiritual fruit out of this desolation than what they saw under David. The root out of the dry ground that we read of in Isaiah 53, verse 2. Remember, Jesus was a root out of the dry ground. He was a tender plant. And so this root out of the dry ground, this, this root that came out of this time of desolation, and this plant in the desert is going to come forth, and something amazing is going to happen. Israel is the woman, the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and so we apply all of this to the seed of Christ, to us, to the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament age. And so this entire promise to Israel, this root out of the dry ground that would yield so much fruit, is an application for us as well some 2,000 years later. And now the promise comes in verses 2 and 3. The family is expanding. The spiritual children of the church will expand worldwide. Now listen, enlarge the place of your tent And let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left. Your descendants will inherit the nations. And make the desolate cities inhabited. Now, since William Carey preached this sermon, let me give you some statistics. He preached this in 230 years ago, 1792. And Europe made up 80% of the Christians in the world in 1800. And now Europe only makes 20% of the Christians in the world today. So it's, it's, an, it's been an 80-20 shift in just the last 200 years. North America made up 15% of the Christians in the world in 1800. Now, North America makes up 10% of the Christians in the world. In the, the year 1800, Africa only had, well, 0% of the Christians in the world. Might have been a few Christians in Egypt and North Africa here and there, but not very many But now, Africa makes up 25% of the Christians in the world, while Europe makes up 20% of the Christians in the world. Asia had roughly 0% of the Christians in the world in uh, 1800. Now, 18% of the Christians in the world live in Asia. Latin America had about 5% of the Christians in the world. Now, that may have included some Roman Catholics, but now Latin America makes up 23% of the Christians in the world. So, there are... 400 million evangelicals in the world today, about 77% of them live in South America, Asia, and Africa. 77% of the 400 million Christians in the world live in Asia, Africa, and South America. There are 880 million Protestant Christians in the world, of which 600 million live in South America, Asia, and Africa. The evangelical population in, in Europe and America, obviously, in decline. The evangelical population in Portugal is about one half a percent of the population. I just checked this out because I was there two weeks ago. The vibrant evangelical growing churches in Portugal are not white. They are red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Catholicism is dying out in Portugal. There's still a half a percent of the population of Portugal are going to church. They're evangelical and they are red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. It's amazing. What God is doing in Europe today, largely because of the missionary movement. At the end of Spurgeon's life, weekly church attendance in England was hovering around 40%. This decreased to 12% by 1970 and then bottomed out at 3% in 2020. Church of England weekly attendance was a mere 854,000 persons or just 1.5% of the population. There were more Christians in Japan in 2020 than people attending church in England. That shows you the extent of the apostasy in the West. The apostasy is total now in the West. Japan is the hardest mission field in the world. I've been there. We worked there as a family when I was a child. Extremely hard. Maybe a half percent, maybe one percent of Japanese. 
are interested in the gospel. But there are more Christians in Japan than people attending the English church today. The majority of the 3% attending churches in London are not white. They are immigrant, which means you're back to about a 1% of, of people like you and me are still attending churches in England, and America has set the same trajectory. Okay, so these are statistics. Now, here's the point. Two-thirds of the Christians in the world today have come from the missionary movement, much influenced by William Carey's message preached in 1792. Let me say that one more time. Two-thirds of the Christians in the world today that did not exist in 1800, two-thirds of the Christians in the world today have come from the missionary movement, very much influenced by the vision that was cast in the preaching of the sermon from this passage. Amazing. Carey's sermon was essentially two points. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Enlarge the tent. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes. Gain a worldwide vision for the kingdom of God. Now, there are periods of time which we might be discouraged. But it doesn't matter if you face seven years, as William Carey did, before his first convert. And that was typically the way it was with Adonai Judson and so many others. Seven years before the first convert. They came with this vision. It didn't matter how long it took to plow the fields. They went and plowed the fields because they had a vision for what God had planned to do. He had told us to disciple the nations, they obeyed, they went, and they continued in that task, sometimes for 20, 30, 40, 50 years of the day of small things. Though, though Isaiah and others had to wait 700 years for Jesus to come, it's critical that every believing man and woman of God lengthen the cords, strengthen the stakes of the tent in their minds, because God is going to do something. That's the vision. That's the thing that we seize by faith this morning. It is the promise of God. It is the plan of God. The very purpose of God. And it will not be thwarted. And we need to lock our eyes onto it like that. And pursue the vision for discipling the nations as Jesus instructed us to do still today. Now enlarging the tent means what? It means that people haven't come in yet. It means that you're building... Bigger buildings. You're extending the tent further and further out. You say, why? We don't have a convert yet. But we extend it in our minds because God has a plan and a purpose to bring about a worldwide kingdom. Does expecting great things from God have anything to do with attempting great things for God? And does attempting great things for God and expecting great things from God have anything to do with obtaining great things from God? There is a connection here between receiving the, the promise by faith, engaging the vision of God, obtaining the vision for what God has intended for His church, and then by faith, in that vision, moving ahead, and continuing by faith to attempt those great things for God. And if we... Expect great things from God and thereby attempt great things for God. We will obtain great things from God. There is a linkage between these three items. As I said, there are times of great discouragement in the church. One of the most discouraging moments in all of history is 1356. A young college graduate from Oxford, John Wycliffe, wrote a book entitled The Last Age of the Church. He was depressed. He was discouraged. Forecasting the end of the age, the end of the world. In 1356, during the bubonic plague where God wiped out a third of Europe, the church was in horrible shape. The popes were pumping out illegitimate children by the dozens. It was depressing. It was discouraging. He was, as it were, the last man alive. As, as a leader who who had a vision for a biblical theology and, and for reforming the church of Jesus Christ in the 14th century before Jan Hus, before anybody else. John Wycliffe, I know of nobody who assisted him. But he was the leader, the, the last man alive, so to speak, to, to lead a reformation. Little did he know there would be 900 million people that would come out of that reformation. 900 million people. From one discouraged man writing a book as he graduated from Oxford, the last age of the church. Lengthen the cords, strengthen the stakes, 
For you shall expand to the right and to the left. Your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. In some respects, brothers and sisters, the message today is easier to believe. They already did it. John Wycliffe already set a vision for it. William Carey already preached the message, went to India. And tens of thousands of other missionaries laid down their lives and brought about a great worldwide reformation and extension of the kingdom of Jesus to include some 900 million Protestants. Children, God promised that Jesus would have a big church with many children. God promised it. We believe it. It doesn't matter how small the church is. It doesn't matter if the church whittles down to four. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if everybody rejects the sermon, as they did for William Carey. Remember, there's two guys who said, yeah, I think he's got something here. It doesn't matter. The vision stands. God's purpose will happen. God's promise is for us to believe. Those who still have faith to believe it. Absolutely, widen the tent. Strengthen the tent pegs. This tent's going to be huge. So why should the church be encouraged? Well, first of all, who is the one to be encouraged? It's the church. It's the barren wife. And verse 17 says, the servants of the Lord. So this is addressed to the servants of the Lord. It's, it's those pastors, evangelists, and people who have a passion for God and for God's kingdom. They get discouraged. I get discouraged. Some of my brother elders get discouraged. Other pastors in the community are discouraged. We're the ones that this passage is directed towards, the servants of the Lord. Not those who don't care. Not those who are anemic. Not those who are dead, who don't care about whether the kingdom of God expands into the territories of, of every aspect of this world's uh, geography. No, no, no. It's, it's those who care. It's those who have a vision. It's those who have a passion for God's church and to build the church and to see that the gates of hell don't prevail against it. And they want to see it multiply. They want to see this this uh, promise come to pass. This is the people that God has come to encourage this morning. He's encouraging you, Todd. He's encouraging you, Josh, and other brothers and sisters that are sitting here going, man, it just seems like there's such a, an apathy or there's a barrenness in this county and they're not receiving the gospel and I'm not hearing somebody you know, saying, yeah, thank you for sharing that with me. I didn't hear that this morning or the, on Friday with the delivery guy. I prayed with him, but you know, it just didn't seem like anything was ringing. But that's all right. We're going to continue the evangelism work. We're going to continue embracing the vision of the kingdom of God and pressing it forward with this uh, objective in mind that God is going to bring back about a great harvest in the process. So why should the church be encouraged? Verses 5 through 9. Basically, God is saying, do you know who I am? He's done this several times throughout Isaiah, hasn't he? Who is the one who presents these promises who is the one who's cast this vision God says me I've cast the vision this is my vision do you know who I am and he's asked that a number of times you know what he says over and over again it's the God who makes it all happen it's a God who cannot fail in his purposes it's a God who, who, who purposes for something to happen prophesies it will happen and pulls it off one way or another. That's the message we've received again and again throughout the book of Isaiah, isn't it? And then verses 5 through 9 here in our passage, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And a redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you are refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. So for a period of time, God removes his presence from the church. But he will not entirely abandon it. It's a point he's saying. He said he was kind in the world during the days of Noah and then promised that he would withhold the destruction of the world by his loving kindness and by his mercies. Now he's even kinder to the church. He says a, a period of, of, of struggle, a period of trial, a period of isolation or desolation might happen, but not for very long because God 
always returns to mercy. He always comes back to mercy. And he always comes back to mercy when we, as the leaders of the church and as members of the church, we cry out for God's mercy. We realize how much trouble we're in as a body. And believe me, your elders are well aware of how much trouble we are in. A number of you have told us that we are in trouble as a church. Yes, we're in trouble. Absolutely. We need God's mercy on this body. I see several of you nodding your heads. Absolutely need God's mercy. And he is a God of mercy. I'm confident he will one day show mercy on this body. And that's what he's saying here. Now, I realize I'm taking the macro into the micro, but I think it has micro applications for us. And that's why I'm bringing it in this morning. But even more importantly, look at verse 5. Extraordinary words here. Listen, your maker is your husband. Wow. Your maker is your husband. The creator of the universe is your husband. In the New Testament, it's clarified as Jesus Christ is the husband for the church. He is the bridegroom for the church. So there is absolutely no discontinuity between Isaiah 54 and Ephesians 5. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the bride of the church. He made the world. In the beginning was the word. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. He he was the creator of the universe. He came down, became like us, taking upon the body and the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he now died on the cross for us so that he would be our bride. He redeemed his church from slavery to the devil and to sin. He bought the church with his own blood, and now he wants an eternal relationship with that body, with that church. Please understand, why should we believe the promise? Uh, He is the creator. He is the God of the whole earth. He is the God of hosts, which means what? He's the God of all armies. He's the God of all power. He's the God who can accomplish everything that he sets out to do. He's the God of ultimate authority. He will have a bride from every tribe and nation around the world. That's his vision. And he will accomplish it. He will get it. He laid down his life for it, and he will have it. This is the kind of commitment that God has placed upon this. He's committed himself, he's committed his word, and he committed his son to it. His son committed his life to it. His his son committed his blood to it. He sealed the covenant with his blood. That means he's serious with it. See, again, the seriousness of God is something that you've all got to reach out and grab onto here this morning. Believe that God has committed himself to this task. To redeem a church, a bride for his son. Verse 10, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. There's a certainty to it. There's eternality. There's a dependability to this covenant relationship. Um, it's, it's the covenant of all covenants. Marriage relationships in this world are often broken. God's covenant with his church, not to be broken, cannot be broken, eternally will not be broken. The, the mountains will depart, the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. God will not abandon Christ in his church. He will have mercy on the body of Christ. His kindness will never depart from the church. But now what is this work? What is he going to do? What is the vision? What is the fruitfulness that is going to come about for the barren wife? For this woman who is in distress, this woman who is afflicted, this woman who has no children. What is this spiritual fruitfulness that will come about by it? Is it an apostate Catholic church with a powerless gospel? Is it a nothing burger evangelical church with a form of godliness but denying the power thereof? What is this? What is this this amazing work that God's going to do? What is the spiritual vitality the church will represent? Will be a holiness. Will be a holy church. And you will spare no expense to bring it about. God's going to bring about... A church lavished with purity and holiness and righteousness and love and joy and peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness and faith. That's what he lavishes upon his church. Now, this, this, is, this woman, this wife, is described in various ways. First, the destitute wife. Also, the prostitute, Ezekiel chapter 23. The church acted the part of the prostitute in the Old Testament. The idolatry and the wickedness that afflicted the church and continues to afflict the church today will be wiped away in the prostitute 
will become a wife for God. I know that's just shocking, but that's what's happening. But now, is God going to be satisfied with a prostitute that hasn't been changed? Is he, is he satisfied with a prostitute that hasn't been washed and cleansed by the blood of his son? That's the question I'm asking you. I mean, if, if this is what God is going to do, he's going to bring about a beautiful wife with all this fruitfulness, righteousness, and holiness. Is he going to be satisfied with the wife acting the part of an idolatrous prostitute? No, he's not going to. That's why he says in verse 11, Oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest, not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. Now, this is prophetic imagery in which he's describing the church as the most beautiful thing in the world. A holy church, young men who are holy, Young women who are holy, older men, older women, who are men and women of deep piety, beautiful marriages where husbands and wives aren't fighting with each other, but pattern Christ in the church. He's, he's presenting a beautiful picture of the forgiveness and the love and the restored relationships horizontally that, that occur in a church in which well, there's repentance and there's true sanctifying grace in which the blood of Jesus Christ really has cleansed us from sin. It really has sanctified a church. There's a marked difference between the church and the world around us. A marked difference in terms of our relationships, our love for one another, our willingness to forgive each other, etc., etc. There's a huge difference. The church is a shining demonstration of God's grace and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 and verse 25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the purpose God has set out for his church, that that destitute one will now be turned into a beautiful wife with lots of children, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But here's a picture of that love. And I think martyrdom may be a, a beautiful picture. The denying of self, taking up the cross daily, following Jesus, loving God to the death. Loving God to the extent that we forgive our brother 490 times and then we die for him. Let me read this testimony from the Zimbabwe martyr that I think is the most beautiful picture of what is presented here. What is it that takes us from the destitution and the dearth, the spiritual dearth, into this sort of a, a, a church that is willing to give up their lives for God? This is so beautiful. And it's because of the Holy Spirit's working and the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ. Listen to what this martyr said before he died. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision's been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by faith, am uplifted by prayer. I labor with power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought. I cannot be compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander in the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know. And the work till he stops me, and when he comes for his own, I will have, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. 
I couldn't think of a better picture of what is presented here in Isaiah 54, and this is it. Again, it's a spiritual prosperity. It's a spiritual blessing. It's a spiritual life that just oozes out of this martyr from Zimbabwe. It just oozes out of it. Is that your testimony? Is this what God is doing here? Is this what the Spirit of God has enlivened in terms of spiritual life that is flowing in our spiritual bloodstreams? Is that what's going on here this morning? I trust it is. I trust God is not done with us yet. And the whore is turned into the bride of Christ. The shack out back of the bar has turned into a castle with pinnacles of spiritual rubies, gates of spiritual crystal, walls of spiritual precious stones. In righteousness you have been established. The holy God is not going to live with a prostitute. And that's one reason he pulls back from some local churches and from entire denominations. I'm just telling you that in the midst of the tremendous apostasies of the last 200 years in England and America, God has pulled back from thousands of churches and denominations. He just pulls back from them. Because our holy God does not live with a prostitute. He must redeem his bride from the den of prostitution. He must make her holy. He calls her out of the most degraded forms of sin, idolatry, perversion, witchcraft, bondage to the devil. And he declares her righteous and makes her holy by the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The the church, therefore, cannot be characterized by divorce, by fightings, by sexual sin, by gossip, by refusal to serve one another, by a lack of love for the body. That's a spiritually barren situation. That's spiritually barren right there. No, no, our God has set out to do something different than that. Our God has set out to have himself a holy church, a transformed church, a sanctified church. Such were some of you, yes, homosexuals, fornicators, etc. But you have been washed. You have been cleansed. You have been justified. There will be continuity as well. The church will beget children. Your children will be taught by the Lord. The spiritually vibrant church has babies. Now, I'm not talking about physical babies. I'm talking about spiritual babies. if, If there is a healthy, reformed, conservative, Baptist, Presbyterian, evangelical church in America that doesn't have children, doesn't have converts, it's dead. It's dead. The dead church. A live church has converts. Spiritual health and blessing involves procreation, spiritual procreation. There must be new births. There must be conversions. A dying church or a barren church does not bear children. There's too much barrenness in conservative denominations. And when you step back and say, where are the conversions? At some points, even our children are walking away from the faith. Meaning there hasn't been a continuity of faith even within the family. That's one of the most desperate situations that I think the world has ever seen. And I'm not talking about just congregant family. I'm talking about pastor's families. It's hard to find very many pastor's families where their children are faithful to the faith in our day. But what do you do when there are so few conversions? People coming in, getting converted. Children being converted in the families. We must believe these promises. We must go back up into the upper room and pray for a revisitation of the Holy Spirit of God. If we have turned into Ichabod Community Church and the glory has departed and there is no spiritual blessing poured out upon our churches, we need to go up into the upper room again and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come and revisit us. That's what needs to happen. And we need to engage this passage, receive this promise, believe God, believe that God will have a church that will have children born into the church and born into our families. And then we must sue God for his promises in prayer. Meaning, if we believe the promise, and God signed the promise in blood, then we will take that promise to God, Isaiah 54, hold it up to him in prayer, in our prayer meetings, and in in, in, in a sense of urgency, we hold it up and say, we must have converts in our church or we die. Give us babies or we die. That needs to be the cry of every family that has a vision for this in this body. This needs to be the cry of every prayer meeting. 
We need to have conversions. We need to see that there are people coming in here and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing it for their eternal salvation. Otherwise, we're dead and dying and dried up as a church. We must pray in faith. You promised a church, oh God. You promised children. Now, where are our children? Some of you say, well, that's pretty bold. To sue God for his promises. Well, as Puritans said. And, and I believe that we hold God to the promises. He gave them to us. We pray them. And we continue to pray them. Until we receive them. Spiritually vibrant church will face spiritual attacks, but that church will have the upper hand over the devil. That's verses 15 through 17. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Well, the spiritually vibrant church will most definitely face the devil. That's what it says here. They shall surely assemble against you. The minute you lay out a strong gospel message, bring the word of God to bear, and God's people come together to love God and to worship God, you know will be surrounded by the enemy. These spiritual forces are intense. The church is the spiritual target, and there's no getting around it. They can take your breath away when you see their cunning, their destructive power, their influence upon people in the church, especially those who are not reading the word, praying, and putting on the whole armor of God. There are those who are not ready, and so they invite the devil in. Sometimes people open doors to these powers by dabbling with the occult, by opening up themselves to ungodly influences, by drugs, alcohol, by sexual perversion, by constantly grieving the Holy Spirit of God, that is, uh, by ill treatment of the brothers and sisters, and by despising the teaching and exhortations from brothers and sisters in the church. So this is how we're opened up. To This is how the doors are opened. Some brothers and sisters might be opening doors up so that more demons will come in and attack us. So, so we understand that there is a battle going on. And if there are some who are opening the doors and some are not putting on the armor of God, and we're not linking arms, praying with and for each other on a regular basis, we can be increasingly subject to demonic powers and spiritual influences in this church. They shall surely come against you. That's what it says here. But then we have to embrace this promise now the gates of hell cannot prevail against us no weapon formed against you shall prosper you shall not fear them what it says now the tendency is this we begin to see that there is the demonic jezebel spirit or something working its way into the church and then our hackles go up and we get fearful we don't have the spirit of love power and a sound mind we get fearful with each other and we get paranoid we start suspecting each other and such that's the, the spirit of, of fear and so we do a spirit check right? We do a spirit check. Do we have a spirit of fear? Are we responding in fear right now? Or do, do we really have a spirit of love for one another? Power and a sound mind as we consider these things. So that's important. Fear not. 365 times in scripture told not to fear. Whatever you do, don't fear. You fear the devil will have more of a, an opportunity at you if you are fearing. Don't be afraid of the devil. Don't be afraid of what he might do. We are impervious. We stand here impervious. Our captain is the Lord Jesus Christ. What would the bridegroom do if a brute came in? I've used this illustration before. So the bridegroom is standing up here. The bride is coming down the aisle. Then a brute just stands up and starts whacking at her with a baseball bat. What would the bridegroom do? Tell me, what do you think the bridegroom would do if his bride is being whacked by some brute with a baseball bat? You think the bridegroom get involved? Is the bridegroom care? Is the bridegroom focused upon his church? Will he protect his church? Will he preserve his church? Even when they're in the midst of these spiritual battles? Absolutely, we've got to believe this. The bridegroom is going to be defending his church. The sovereign God is also the one who created the enemy, and he can control the devil. That's what he said. I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. God controls all of these things. He's testing our faith. 
when the demonic stuff comes in, he's just testing our faith. We're back into the boiler one more time. But we have to have this mindset that even as a church under attack, we are going to win. Can we all say that together? We are going to win. We got to believe this. We believe the promise here. No weapon formed against this church will prosper. We are going to win. We have to have that mindset. We will conquer the devil in this body. And yes, he will fight against us. Yes, he'll send in the Judases, the Alexanders, the Coppersmiths, or whatever. But we are going to win. Though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for he has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Just say it. Jesus. Jesus. Just say it. Jesus. That word will fail him. The devil will not win with his divisiveness, his constant barrage of evil surmisings and evil speakings. We will continue to look to God. We will trust in his promises. And let's keep our hands in the air. Continue to think of Moses' hands in the air as they're winning that battle. Our hands are always in the air. Amen, brothers? We know we're under assault. As long as our hands are in the air, we're going to be okay. Why? Because we are looking to him, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we know he's going to make it happen for us. Amen. Remember, he is far above all principalities and powers. This is the most ironic thing. I preached to this two weeks ago. The most ironic thing. He is far above all principalities and powers while we are engaging principalities and powers. You ever think of that? He is far above all principalities and powers while we are engaging. It's just for us to stay in communication with the captain. Be in prayer. Be in prayer. We'll be okay as long as we're on our knees. We'll be fine. Just fight on your knees. Fight on your knees. And you'll be okay. Amen. Father in heaven, what beautiful promises that you've given to us this day. Father, ah, the church of Jesus Christ, so precious everywhere around the world today. Oh, what have you done, oh God? Indeed, the promises of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in so many different ways. But Father, we pray that as we are sometimes discouraged ourselves, that we would pick up these promises again, we'd engage ministry, we'd never be discouraged, continue on. Father, wake us up, we pray. There's anybody here in this room that is not awakened, that's not converted, has not seen the value of Jesus Christ coming to save them from their sins and from eternal hellfire. Father, help them to embrace that today. And we pray your kingdom would march on. And God, we, we do lift up our hands to you and ask for your mercy upon our church. Bring conversions. Bring new births. Oh God, that we would not die. Bring new births. Bring about uh, many, many children from this bride. Oh God, bring the promise of Isaiah 54 to pass in our little fellowship here in Elizabeth, we pray. Have mercy on us. Help us we engage the battle. Oh God, that we would win. We would see that we are winning. That though we are lambs to the slaughter, we are always more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh God, that we would see this. We pray your hand would be upon your people now. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you all see that Jesus is winning? He's winning all around the world. Now, some of you say it takes a long time. 2,000 years is like two days for God. Okay. Well, we come to the table, and God is making us holy. He's making a holy people out of us. And one of the means of grace is the holy communion table. And he uses this holy table to make us holy. Because that is his commitment. God is committed to your holiness and to my holiness. Now, he's identified us this way. I'm going to give you a couple of Bible verses and then we'll get right to the table. But he's identified the church as saints, as holy. We are holy. We're set apart. We are cleansed. We are sanctified. 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race. That's your identity. A chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then 1 Peter 1.15, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
because it is written, Be holy that I am holy. 2 Corinthians 7.1 also, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you sense the commitment that God has to our holiness? Now, to the extent, and this really capitalizes on some of the exhortation this morning, to the extent that God will chastise us. He will put us in fire in order to purge out the dross and to make us more holy. He will take away a spouse. He will take away your job. He will send, well, a hundred trials your direction. But why? Because, well, Hebrews 12 says, to get the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He will do what it takes to get out of you the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see, he's going to go quite a distance in order to see that you are going to be cleansed and that you will, verse 14 of the same passage, pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So you see the commitment that, the, that God has for our holiness, but most importantly, God is so committed to our holiness and to have a righteous people, He sent His Son to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus was sent in order to cleanse us as we read in Ephesians 5, to to make us a beautiful church, a glorious church. That's what he wants, a glorious church. And so if you say, that's a little odd, there's been so many trials going on in my life. There's so much cleansing and so much sanctifying that God insists upon my life. What's the deal with that? That's his agenda. For anybody who signed up to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ, that's the agenda. He is going to sanctify us. Titus 2 as well, Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a special people, zealous for good works. So every Christian has experienced this cleansing. And all of us who are taking the table, don't take the table if you haven't experienced cleansing. Now, I'm not saying it's been perfected. We've talked about, you know, there's dross still there. But, But we've all experienced the cleansing. That comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. And trials, of course, help us. But more fundamentally, what cleanses us is the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing our hearts. And so we've all experienced this this internal cleansing from the foul sin that used to besmirch our souls. The mud of sin has been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have all experienced this as we approach the table. So, again, God is committed to this vision. This is a commitment to to see a sanctified people. My son's bleeding will cleanse these people and make them holy. That was his intent. So let's, as we approach the table, let's believe in Christ. Believe in the power of the blood of Christ. Be thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sins. And that is represented by the cup today. So I want you to, to think about the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed And the intent of it was that the Father wanted us to be cleaned up. And that's why he had his son shed his blood on the cross for us. So let's take that meditation to this table now. Those of you visiting for the first time, take a look at the back of the bulletin. We have a little synopsis on how we practice the Lord's table on the back of the bulletin. So we ask that you read that before you partake with us. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come again with gratitude that that you went to these ends, that you were so committed to having a people, to having a bride, to having a holy church, that you sent your son. He, he bled on the cross in order that his blood would be used to cleanse away our sins and make us a sanctified and a holy people to you. Father, we, we sense your commitment to this. We receive it. In, in faith, we lean, out, lean into the blood of Jesus Christ. We confess our sins gladly and openly, knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ is there to cleanse us and to forgive us of all of our sins. So, Father, with, with joy and with confidence, we come and embrace this. We embrace the cup and the bread, which, which symbolizes and signifies the, the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us, the body of Christ 
that was sacrificed on that cross in our place. We receive this with joy and with thanksgiving. Father, thank you. We bless you. We praise you for these, this good gift, this unspeakable gift of your son, Jesus. And we receive this bread and this wine with a sense of this gratitude and this love for you. Increase our love, Holy Spirit. Come down. Apply this to us. Cleanse us more now, we pray. Holy Spirit of God, in Jesus' name, amen.